Chapter 61 of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sheila Morton. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter 61. Inconsistencies, answered Imlac, cannot both be right, but imputed to man, they may both be true. Rasselas. The same night, when Mr. Bulstrode returned from a journey to Brassing on business, his good wife met him in the entrance hall and drew him into his private sitting-room. Nicholas, she said, fixing her honest eyes upon him anxiously, there has been such a disagreeable man here asking for you. It has made me quite uncomfortable. What kind of man, my dear, said Mr. Bulstrode, dreadfully certain of the answer. A red-faced man with large whiskers and most impudent in his manner. He declared he was an old friend of yours and said you would be sorry not to see him. He wanted to wait for you here, but I told him he could see you at the bank tomorrow morning. Most impudent he was. Stared at me and said his friend Nick had luck in wives. I don't believe he would have gone away if Blucher had not happened to break his chain and come running round on the gravel, for I was in the garden. So I said, you'd better go away. The dog is very fierce, and I can't hold him. Do you really know anything of such a man? I believe I know who he is, my dear, said Mr. Bulstrode in his usual subdued voice. An unfortunate, dissolute wretch, whom I helped too much in days gone by. However, I presume you will not be troubled by him again. He will probably come to the bank, to beg, doubtless. No more was said on the subject until the next day, when Mr. Bulstrode had returned from the town and was dressing for dinner. His wife, not sure that he was come home, looked into his dressing room and saw him with his coat and cravat off, leaning one arm on a chest of drawers and staring absently at the ground. He started nervously and looked up as she entered. "'You look very ill, Nicholas. Is there anything the matter?' "'I have a good deal of pain in my head,' said Mr. Bulstrode, "'who was so frequently ailing that his wife was always ready to believe in this cause of depression. "'Sit down and let me sponge it with vinegar.' "'Physically, Mr. Bulstrode did not want the vinegar, "'but morally the affectionate attention soothed him. "'Though always polite, it was his habit to receive such services "'with marital coolness as his wife's duty. "'But today, while she was bending over him, he said, "'You are very good, Harriet.' in a tone which had something new in it to her ear. She did not know exactly what the novelty was, but her woman's solicitude shaped itself into a darting thought that he might be going to have an illness. "'Has anything worried you?' she said. "'Did that man come to you at the bank?' "'Yes, it was as I had supposed. He is a man who at one time might have done better, but he has sunk into a drunken, debauched creature.' "'Is he quite gone away?' said Mrs. Bulstrode anxiously, but for certain reasons she refrained from adding, it was very disagreeable to hear him calling himself a friend of yours. At that moment she would not have liked to say anything which implied her habitual consciousness that her husband's earlier connections were not quite on a level with her own. Not that she knew much about them, that her husband had at first been employed in a bank, that he had afterwards entered into what he called city business, and gained a fortune before he was three and thirty, that he had married a widow who was much older than himself, a dissenter, and in other ways, probably of that disadvantageous quality usually perceptible in a first wife, if inquired into with the dispassionate judgment of a second, 
was almost as much as she had cared to learn beyond the glimpses which Mr. Bulstrode's narrative occasionally gave of his early bent towards religion, his inclination to be a preacher, and his association with missionary and philanthropic efforts. She believed in him as an excellent man, whose piety carried a peculiar eminence in belonging to a layman, whose influence had turned her own mind towards seriousness, and whose share of perishable good had been the means of raising her own position. But she also liked to think that it was well in every sense for Mr. Bulstrode to have won the hand of Harriet Vincy, whose family was undeniable in a Middlemarch light, a better light, surely, than any thrown in London thoroughfares or dissenting chapel yards. The unreformed provincial mind distrusted London, and while true religion was everywhere saving, honest Mrs. Bulstrode was convinced that to be saved in the church was more respectable. She so much wished to ignore towards others that her husband had ever been a London dissenter, that she liked to keep it out of sight even in talking to him. He was quite aware of this. Indeed, in some respects, he was rather afraid of this ingenuous wife, whose imitative piety and native worldliness were equally sincere, who had nothing to be ashamed of, and whom he had married out of a thorough inclination still subsisting. But his fears were such as belonged to a man who cares to maintain his recognized supremacy. The loss of high consideration from his wife, as from everyone else who did not clearly hate him out of enmity to the truth, would be as the beginning of death to him. When she said, Is he quite gone away? Oh, I trust so, he answered, with an effort to throw as much sober unconcern into his tone as possible. But in truth, Mr. Bulstrode was very far from a state of quiet trust. In the interview at the bank, Raffles had made it evident that his eagerness to torment was almost as strong in him as any other greed. He had frankly said that he had turned out of the way to come to Middlemarch just to look about him and see whether the neighborhood would suit him to live in. He had certainly had a few debts to pay, more than he expected, but the two hundred pounds were not yet gone. A cool five and twenty would suffice him to go away with for the present. What he had wanted chiefly was to see his friend Nick and family and know all about the prosperity of a man to whom he was so much attached. By and by, he might come back for a longer stay. This time, Raffles declined to be seen off the premises, as he expressed it, declined to quit Middlemarch under Bulstrode's eyes. He meant to go by coach the next day, if he chose. Bulstrode felt himself helpless. Neither threats nor coaxing could avail. He could not count on any persistent fear, nor on any promise. On the contrary, he felt a cold certainty at his heart that Raffles, unless Providence sent death to hinder him, would come back to Middlemarch before long, and that certainty was a terror. It was not that he was in danger of legal punishment or of beggary. He was in danger only of seeing disclosed to the judgment of his neighbors and the mournful perception of his wife certain facts of his past life which would render him an object of scorn and an opprobrium of the religion to which he had diligently associated himself. The terror of being judged sharpens the memory. It sends an inevitable glare over that long, unvisited past which has been habitually recalled only in general phrases. Even without memory, the life is bonded into one by a zone of dependence in growth and decay. But intense memory forces a man to own his blameworthy past. With memory set smarting like a reopened wound, a man's past is not simply a dead history, an outworn preparation of the present. 
It is not a repented error shaken loose from the life. It is a still quivering part of himself, bringing shudders and bitter flavors and the tinglings of a merited shame. Into this second life, Bulstrode's past had now risen, only the pleasures of it seeming to have lost their quality. Night and day, without interruption save of brief sleep, which only wove retrospect and fear into a fantastic present, he felt the seams of his earlier life coming between him and everything else, as obstinately as when we look through the window from a lighted room, the objects we turn our backs on are still before us, instead of the grass and the trees. The successive events inward and outward were there in one view. Though each might be dwelt on in turn, the rest still kept their hold in the consciousness. Once more he saw himself the young banker's clerk, with an agreeable person, as clever in figures as he was fluent in speech, and fond of theological definition, an eminent though young member of a Calvinistic dissenting church at Highbury, having had striking experience in conviction of sin and sense of pardon. Again he heard himself called for as Brother Bulstrode in prayer meetings, speaking on religious platforms, preaching in private houses. Again he felt himself thinking of the ministry as possibly his vocation and inclined towards missionary labor. That was the happiest time of his life. That was the spot he would have chosen now to awaken and find the rest a dream. The people among whom Brother Bulstrode was distinguished were very few, but they were very near to him and stirred his satisfaction the more. His power stretched through a narrow space, but he felt its effect the more intensely. He believed without effort in the peculiar work of grace within him and in the signs that God intended him for special instrumentality. Then came the moment of transition. It was with the sense of promotion he had when he, an orphan educated at a commercial charity school, was invited to a fine villa belonging to Mr. Dunkirk, the richest man in the congregation. Soon he became an intimate there, honored for his piety by the wife, marked out for his ability by the husband, whose wealth was due to a flourishing city and West End trade. That was the setting in of a new current for his ambition, directing his prospects of instrumentality towards the uniting of distinguished religious gifts with successful business. By and by came a decided external leading. A confidential subordinate partner died, and nobody seemed to the principal so well fitted to fill the severely felt vacancy as his young friend Bulstrode, if he would become confidential accountant. The offer was accepted. The business was a pawnbroker's of the most magnificent sort, both in extent and profits, and on a short acquaintance with it, Bulstrode became aware that one source of magnificent profit was the easy reception of any goods offered without strict inquiry as to where they came from. But there was a branch house at the West End and no pettiness or dinginess to give suggestions of shame. He remembered his first moments of shrinking. They were private and were filled with arguments, some of these taking the form of prayer. The business was established and had old roots. Is it not one thing to set up a new gin palace and another to accept an investment in an old one? The profits made out of lost souls, where can the line be drawn at which they begin in human transactions? Was it not even God's way of saving his chosen? Thou knowest, the young Bulstrode had said then, as the older Bulstrode was saying now, Thou knowest how loose my soul sits from these things, how I view them all as implements for tilling, thy garden rescued here and there from the wilderness. 
Metaphors and precedences were not wanting. Peculiar spiritual experiences were not wanting, which at last made the retention of his position seem a service demanded of him. The vista of a fortune had already opened itself, and Bulstrode's shrinking remained private. Mr. Dunkirk had never expected that there would be any shrinking at all. He had never conceived that trade had anything to do with the scheme of salvation. And it was true that Bulstrode found himself carrying on two distinct lives. His religious activity could not be incompatible with his business as soon as he had argued himself into not feeling it incompatible. Mentally surrounded with that past again, Bulstrode had the same pleas. Indeed, the years had been perpetually spinning them into intricate thickness, like masses of spider web, padding the moral sensibility. Nay, as age made egoism more eager but less enjoying, his soul had become more saturated with the belief that he did everything for God's sake, being indifferent to it for his own. And yet, if he could be back in that far-off spot with his youthful poverty, why then he would choose to be a missionary. But the train of causes in which he had locked himself went on. There was trouble in the fine villa at Highbury. Years before, the only daughter had run away, defied her parents, and gone on the stage. And now, the only boy died, and after a short time, Mr. Dunkirk died also. The wife, a simple, pious woman, left with all the wealth in and out of the magnificent trade, of which she never knew the precise nature, had come to believe in Bulstrode and innocently adore him as women often adore their priest or man-made minister. It was natural that after a time marriage should have been thought of between them. But Mrs. Dunkirk had qualms and yearnings about her daughter, who had long been regarded as lost, both to God and her parents. It was known that the daughter had married, but she was utterly gone out of sight. The mother, having lost her boy, imagined a grandson, and wished in a double sense to reclaim her daughter. If she were found, there could be a channel for property, perhaps a wide one, in the provision for several grandchildren. Efforts to find her must be made before Mrs. Dunkirk would marry again. Bulstrode concurred. But after advertisement, as well as other modes of inquiry had been tried, the mother believed that her daughter was not to be found, and consented to marry without reservation of property. The daughter had been found, but only one man besides Bulstrode knew it, and he was paid for keeping silence and carrying himself away. That was the bare fact which Bulstrode was now forced to see in the rigid outline with which acts present themselves onlookers. But for himself at that distant time, and even now in burning memory, the fact was broken into little sequences, each justified as it came by reasonings which seemed to prove it righteous. Bulstrode's course up to that time had, he thought, been sanctioned by remarkable providences, appearing to point the way for him to be the agent in making the best use of a large property and withdrawing it from perversion. Death and other striking dispositions, such as feminine trustfulness, had come, and Bulstrode would have adopted Cromwell's words, Do you call these bare events? The Lord pity you. The events were comparatively small, but the essential condition was there, namely, that they were in favor of his own ends. It was easy for him to settle what was due from him to others by inquiring what were God's intentions with regards to himself. Could it be for God's service that this fortune should in any considerable proportion go to a young woman and her husband who were given up to the lightest pursuit 
Lights and My Scatter It Abroad in Triviality, People Who Seem to Lie Outside the Path of Remarkable Providences. Bulstrode had never said to himself beforehand, The daughter shall not be found. Nevertheless, when the moment came, he kept her existence hidden, and when other moments followed, he soothed the mother with consolation in the probability that the unhappy young woman might be no more. There were hours in which Bulstrode felt that his action was unrighteous, but how could he go back? He had mental exercises, called himself Knopf, laid hold on redemption, and went on in his course of instrumentality. And after five years, death again came to widen his path by taking away his wife. He did gradually withdraw his capital, but he did not make the sacrifices requisite to put an end to the business, which was carried on for thirteen years afterwards, before it finally collapsed. Meanwhile, Nicholas Bulstrode had used his hundred thousand discreetly, and was become provincially solidly important. A banker, a churchman, a public benefactor. Also, a sleeping partner in trading concerns in which his ability was directed to economy in the raw material, as in the case of the dyes which rotted Mr. Vincey's silk. And now, when this respectability had lasted undisturbed for nearly thirty years, when all that preceded it had long lain benumbed in the consciousness, that past had risen and immersed his thought as if with a terrible eruption of a new sense overburdening the feeble being. Meanwhile, in his conversation with Raffles, he had learned something momentous, something which entered actively into the struggle of his longings and terrors. There, he thought, lay an opening toward spiritual, perhaps toward material, rescue. The spiritual kind of rescue was a genuine need with him. There may be coarse hypocrites who consciously affect beliefs and emotions for the sake of gulling the world, but Bulstrode was not one of them. He was simply a man whose desires had been stronger than his theoretic beliefs, and who had gradually explained the gratification of his desires into satisfactory agreement with those beliefs. If this be hypocrisy, it is a process which shows itself occasionally in us all. To whatever confession we belong, and whether we believe in the future perfection of our race, or in the nearest date fixed for the end of the world, whether we regard the earth as a putrefying nidus for a saved remnant, including ourselves, or have a passionate belief in the solidarity of mankind. The service he could do to the cause of religion had been through life the ground he alleged to himself for his choice of action. It had been the motive which he had poured out in his prayers. Who would use money and position better than he meant to use them? Who could surpass him in self-abhorrence and exaltation of God's cause? And to Mr. Bulstrode, God's cause was something distinct from his own rectitude of conduct. It enforced a discrimination of God's enemies, who were to be used merely as instruments, and whom it would be as well, if possible, to keep out of money and consequent influence. Also, profitable investments in trades, where the power of the prince of this world showed its most active devices, became sanctified by a right application of the profits in the hands of God's servant. This implicit reasoning is essentially no more peculiar to evangelical belief than the use of wide phrases for narrow motives is peculiar to Englishmen. There is no general doctrine which is not capable of eating out our morality if unchecked by the deep habit of direct fellow feeling with individual fellow men. But a man who believes in something else than his own greed has necessarily a conscience 
or standard to which he more or less adapts himself. Bulstrode's standard had been his serviceableness to God's cause. I am sinful and not, a vessel to be consecrated by use, but use me, had been the mold into which he had constrained his immense need of being something important and predominating. And now had come a moment in which that mold seemed in danger of being broken and utterly cast away. What if the acts he had reconciled himself to, because they made him a stronger instrument of the divine glory, were to become the pretext of the scoffer and a darkening of that glory? If this were to be the ruling of providence, he was cast out from the temple as one who had brought unclean offerings. He had long poured out utterances of repentance, but today a repentance had come which was of a bitter flavor, and a threatening providence urged him to a kind of propitiation which was not simply a doctrinal transaction. The divine tribunal had changed its aspect for him. Self-prostration was no longer enough, and he must bring restitution in his hand. It was really before his God that Bulstrode was about to attempt such restitution as seemed possible. A great dread had seized his susceptible frame, and the scorching approach of shame wrought in him a new spiritual need. Night and day, while the resurgent threatening past was making a conscience within him, he was thinking by what means he could recover peace and trust, by what sacrifice he could stay the rod. His belief in these moments of dread was that if he spontaneously did something right, God would save him from the consequences of wrongdoing. For religion can only change when the emotions which fill it are changed, and the religion of personal fear remains nearly at the level of the savage. He had seen Raffles actually going away on the brassing coach, and this was a temporary relief. It removed the pressure of an immediate dread, but did not put an end to the spiritual conflict and the need to win protection. At last he came to a difficult resolve, and wrote a letter to Will Ladislaw, begging him to be at the shrubs that evening for a private interview at nine o'clock. Will had felt no particular surprise at the request, and connected it with some new notions about the pioneer, but when he was shown into Mr. Bulstrode's private room, he was struck with a painfully worn look on the banker's face, and was going to say, Are you ill? When checking himself in that abruptness, he only inquired after Mrs. Bulstrode and her satisfaction with the picture bought for her. Thank you. She is quite satisfied. She has gone out with her daughters this evening. I begged you to come, Mr. Ladislaw, because I have a communication of a very private, indeed, I will say, of a sacredly confidential nature, which I desire to make to you. Nothing, I dare say, has been farther from your thoughts than that there had been important ties in the past which could connect your history with mine. Will felt something like an electric shock. He was already in a state of keen sensitiveness and hardly allayed agitation on the subject of ties in the past, and his presentiments were not agreeable. It seemed like the fluctuations of a dream, as if the action begun by that loud, bloated stranger were being carried on by this pale-eyed, sickly-looking piece of respectability, whose subdued tone and glib formality of speech were at this moment almost as repulsive to him as their remembered contrast. He answered with a marked change of color. No, indeed, nothing. You see before you, Mr. Ladislaw, a man who is deeply stricken, but for the urgency 
of conscience and the knowledge that I am before the bar of one who seeth not as man seeth, I should be under no compulsion to make the disclosure which has been my object in asking you to come here tonight. So far as human laws go, you have no claim on me whatever. Will was even more uncomfortable than wondering. Mr. Bulstrode had paused, leaning his head on his hand and looking at the floor. But he now fixed his examining glance on Will and said, I am told that your mother's name was Sarah Dunkirk, and that she ran away from her friends to go on the stage. Also, that your father was at one time much emaciated by illness. May I ask if you can confirm these statements? Yes, they are all true, said Will, struck with the order in which an inquiry had come that might have been expected to be preliminary to the banker's previous hints. But Mr. Bulstrode had tonight followed the order of his emotions. He entertained no doubt that the opportunity for restitution had come, and he had an overpowering impulse towards the penitential expression by which he was deprecating chastisement. Do you know any particulars of your mother's family? He continued. No, she never liked to speak of them. She was a very generous, honorable woman, said Will almost angrily. I do not wish to allege anything against her. Did she never mention her mother to you at all? I have heard her say that she thought her mother did not know the reason of her running away. She said, poor mother, in a pitying tone. That mother became my wife, said Bulstrode, and then paused a moment before he added, You have a claim on me, Mr. Ladislaw. As I said before, not a legal claim, but one which my conscience recognizes. I was enriched by that marriage, a result which would probably not have taken place, certainly not to the same extent, if your grandmother could have discovered her daughter. That daughter, I gather, is no longer living. No, said Will, feeling suspicion and repugnance rising so strongly within him that without quite knowing what he did, he took his hat from the floor and stood up. The impulse within him was to reject the disclosed connection. Pray be seated, Mr. Ladislaw, said Bulstrode anxiously. Doubtless you are startled by the suddenness of this discovery, but I entreat your patience with one who is already bowed down by inward trial. Will reseated himself, feeling some pity which was half contempt for this voluntary self-abasement of an elderly man. It is my wish, Mr. Ladislaw, to make amends for the deprivation which befell your mother. I know that you are without fortune, and I wish to supply you adequately from a store which would have probably already been yours had your grandmother been certain of your mother's existence and been able to find her. Mr. Bulstrode paused. He felt that he was performing a striking piece of scrupulosity in the judgment of his auditor and a penitential act in the eyes of God. He had no clue to the state of Will Ladislaw's mind, smarting as it was from the clear hints of Raffles, and with its natural quickness in construction stimulated by the expectation of discoveries which he would have been glad to conjure back into darkness. Will made no answer for several moments, till Mr. Bulstrode, who at the end of his speech had cast his eyes on the floor, now raised them with an examining glance, which Will met fully, saying, I suppose you did know of my mother's existence, and knew where she might have been found. Bulstrode shrank. There was a visible quivering in his face and hands. 
He was totally unprepared to have his advances met in this way, or to find himself urged into more revelation than he had beforehand set down as needful. But at that moment he dared not tell a lie, and he felt suddenly uncertain of his ground, which he had trodden with some confidence before. "'I will not deny that you conjecture rightly,' he answered with a faltering in his tone. "'And I wish to make atonement to you as the one still remaining who has suffered a loss through me. "'You enter, I trust, into my purpose, Mr. Ladislaw, which has a reference to higher than merely human claims.' and as I have already said, is entirely independent of any legal compulsion. I am ready to narrow my own resources and the prospects of my family by binding myself to allow you 500 pounds yearly during my life and to leave you a proportional capital at my death, nay, to do still more if more should be definitely necessary to any laudable project on your part. Mr. Bulstrode had gone on to particulars in the expectation that these would work strongly on Ladislaw and merge other feelings in grateful acceptance. But Will was looking as stubborn as possible, with his lips pouting and his fingers in his side pockets. He was not in the least touched, and said firmly, "'Before I make you any reply to your proposition, Mr. Bulstrode, I must beg you to answer a question or two. Were you connected with the business by which that fortune you speak of was originally made?' Mr. Bulstrode's thought was, Raffles has told him. How could he refuse to answer when he had volunteered what drew forth the question? He answered, yes. And was that business, or was it not, a thoroughly dishonorable one? Nay, one that, if its nature had been made public, might have ranked those concerned in it with thieves and convicts. Will's tone had a cutting bitterness. He was moved to put his question as nakedly as he could. Bulstrode reddened with irrepressible anger. He had been prepared for a scene of self-abasement, but his intense pride and his habit of supremacy overpowered penitence, and even dread, when this young man, whom he had meant to benefit, turned on him with the air of a judge. The business was established before I became connected with it, sir, nor is it for you to institute an inquiry of that kind. He answered, not raising his voice, but speaking with quick defiantness. Yes, it is, said Will, starting up again with his hat in his hand. It is eminently mine to ask such questions when I have to decide whether I will have transactions with you and accept your money. My unblemished honor is important to me. It is important to me to have no stain on my birth and connections, and now I find there is a stain which I can't help. My mother felt it and tried to keep as clear of it as she could, and so will I. You shall keep your ill-gotten money. If I had any fortune of my own, I would willingly pay it to anyone who could disprove what you have told me. What I have to thank you for is that you kept the money till now when I can refuse it. It ought to lie with a man's self that he is a gentleman." Good night, sir. Bulstrode was going to speak, but Will, with determined quickness, was out of the room in an instant, and in another the hall door had closed behind him. He was too strongly possessed with passionate rebellion against this inherited blot which had been thrust on his knowledge to reflect at present whether he had not been too hard on Bulstrode, too arrogantly merciless towards a man of sixty who was making efforts at retrieval when time had rendered them vain.
No third person listening could have thoroughly understood the impetuosity of Will's repulse or the bitterness of his words. No one but himself then knew how everything connected with the sentiment of his own dignity had an immediate bearing for him on his relation to Dorothea and to Mr. Casabon's treatment of him. And in the rush of impulses by which he flung back that offer of Bulstrode's, there was mingled the sense that it would have been impossible for him ever to tell Dorothea that he had accepted it. As for Bulstrode, when Will was gone, he suffered a violent reaction and wept like a woman. It was the first time he had encountered an open expression of scorn from any man higher than Raffles. And with that scorn hurrying like venom through his system, there was no sensibility left to consolations. But the relief of weeping had to be checked. His wife and daughter soon came home from hearing the address of an Oriental missionary and were full of regret that Papa had not heard, in the first instance, the interesting things which they tried to repeat to him. Perhaps, through all other hidden thoughts, the one that breathed most comfort was that Will Ladda's law, at least, was not likely to publish what had taken place that evening. End of chapter 61